Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else this podcast is being listened to. At times, the conversations in our podcast may be more relevant to the general public. We've had some great conversations with parents and patients telling us about their experience and how we can learn to better support them during this time. We've also learned how the healthcare system works for families and providers in our state. At times, our conversations have been more relevant to medical providers. Today is one of those days. Our discussion today will focus on quality improvement and the work of perinatal quality collaboratives, or PQCs. Across the U.S., almost every state has a PQC, and we love having the opportunity to sit down and share what we are doing and to borrow ideas from each other as we seek to improve the care for moms and babies in our own state. Several podcasts ago, we got to sit down with the director of the Wisconsin PQC. Today, we have the opportunity to do that with the director for the Massachusetts PQC, Dr. Meg Parker. Speaking of our guests, let me introduce her to you. Dr. Parker is a professor of pediatrics and academic chief of neonatology at UMass Memorial Medical Center. Dr. Parker is a neonatal health services researcher and holds several federal and foundation grants in the areas of social disparities and preterm outcomes. She has a particular interest in safe sleep and breastfeeding. She's also an expert in multi-site implementation science and is the co-chair of the Neonatal Quality Improvement Collaborative of Massachusetts and an improvement advisor from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. She's led multi-site NICU quality improvements focused on breastfeeding and family engagement. Dr. Parker applies a health equity lens to her local and multi-site quality improvement projects and is a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee of Fetus and Newborn. Dr. Parker, or can I call you Meg? Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. You can definitely call me Meg. Awesome. Well, hey, you know, as we get started, I just want to learn a little bit more about you. How exactly did you wind up in neonatology and doing what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. I was a pediatric resident at Oakland Children's Hospital. I actually grew up very close to there. So it was an area that uh, was near and dear to me to work in. And I thought I would go into general pediatrics. But during my second year as a resident, I started rotating through the neonatal intensive care unit or NICU. And I remember seeing these families, and particularly these mothers that had obesity and hypertension that were giving birth to these preterm infants. And I was very intrigued by this. I, I, I learned that the medical conditions that the mothers had during pregnancy had these long lasting impacts on the babies. 
both in how we cared for them in the NICU and going forward. And I think that's what really sparked my interest about this time during life. That's just so important, I think, from a medical perspective. And then coupled with that, also the social aspects that just reaching these families at this time is really a life-changing moment could have such long-lasting impacts. And like everyone remembers the birth. Everyone remembers when it didn't go as expected. I think I was just very drawn to that as well. So for me, it was this experience of, um, as a pediatric resident, uh, understanding both the importance of the perinatal time perspective or time points from the perspective of the social part and the medical part. Yeah, that's great. So how, how exactly did you get involved in quality improvement? Oh, that happened later on, actually. So I, I ended up doing fellowship in neonatology and quality improvement wasn't as much on the radar, I think, as a methodology when I was going through it. Um, and it was really as an early faculty member when I started doing projects locally to bring donor milk and breastfeeding improvements into my NICU. And that is when I became more aware that there was a whole robust quality improvement methodology behind it. And so I became very intrigued. I, I think what I liked about it um, was that it was so practical, that it brought evidence that we know is really important for our families and for our babies. And it helped us integrate this evidence in a practical way into the actual care we provide. And it encompasses you know, thinking about the perspective of all the different providers with multidisciplinary teams and how to measure things over time and really how to like practically integrate evidence into the care we provide every day. So I just loved this. Like I just loved this and was very drawn to this type of like modality to make our clinical care better. So for me, those were kind of the beginning origins of my, my um, passion for quality improvement work. Yeah, that's a fun thing I like about QI too, is we know sometimes this stuff that we need to do that's evidence-based, it's proven. And I know you played in this area as well. How do you get people to actually implement this and do those things that we know is better? Because it's so hard to sometimes change people's habits or to get people to do new things. Can you speak about that for a little bit? And with some of your early projects, maybe how you tweaked some things in the culture to get people to do those, those, those more important things, those better things? So I think there's a lot of ways we can try to get people to change their practice within the context of neonatal quality improvement. Um, one of the most important things to do when you want to try to lead to a change in practice is making sure that you engage in all of the stakeholders that work in your NICU, including family voices as well, in as early in the process as you can. Um, it's important to get their voices, their perspectives about how a new change could best be implemented. Um, people will have more trust. They'll have more trust in the actual process, more trust in the outcome and be more engaged. And that tends to work much better than having, you know, a single medical leader dictating we must change something, for example. Another thing to do in this area is to get a small group of champions engaged really early on, rather than trying to sort of change the culture across your whole NICU or change the beliefs about a certain thing across your whole NICU. Start with a smaller group of people, um, get them to help work with the change, um, work out the kinks, if you will. And then when people start to see those successes, you can make it more broad across the NICU. Those things also can help buy in over the course of time. Super, super important information. Well, hey, tell me a little bit about the Massachusetts uh, PQC. What, what all, how do you function? What all have you been involved in over the past few years? 
Yeah, so our Massachusetts PQC, just like other uh, perinatal quality collaboratives, we have over time have a lot of projects that are predominantly more obstetrical in, or, in orientation, and then some that are more neonatal, and then some that really sort of hit both. And I would say our PQC has been around for about 15 years or so, but really in the past decade, we've started to do quite larger, more robust, multi-site quality improvement projects. On the neonatal side, we've the, the main projects I've been involved with was first one from 2015 to 2018 or so that involved breastfeeding. And in that one, our goal was really to try to improve uh, provision of mother's milk for very low birth weight infants in our level three NICUs. And we had 100% engagement. All 10 of the level three NICUs in our state participated. We have 10, so it was 10 out of 10. And are the main things we were really trying to work on were prenatal education about breastfeeding. And we we're really trying to get people to talk about breastfeeding during prenatal consults. The second main thing was early initiation of lactation. So it's recommended to start milk expression within six hours after birth. You know, often this is more like 12 to 24 hours after birth. So that was another big thing we tried to work on was getting us to start doing that sooner. And I would say the third big one we worked on a lot was skin to skin. Skin to skin care has an array of benefits. Um, families generally really like it, <laughs> but a lot of times us as medical providers are a little worried about letting um, fragile babies do it. But it turns out actually both babies in their fragile state and their parents really benefit. So those were sort of our main things. And over the course of that time, we did improve them. We actually improved all of them which was so important and we were so proud and our teams did a huge number of uh, PDSA cycles or plan, do, study, act cycles, working on all these different elements. However, what we found is that we actually did not move breastfeeding at the point of discharge. And so we were very intrigued by this and we had worked so hard and we had actually improved in all of those process measures. But when we dug deeper, what we found was that our breastfeeding rates we're, we're pretty good for the first three weeks of the hospitalization, which it turns out that's where we really focused our efforts. Mm -hmm. But they, when they tended to drop off was later on in the hospitalization. So this led us to wonder like, why? Like, what is going on? Like, why are we, why are we having a drop off in breastfeeding occur later? So the other thing besides that main finding that we we're really focused on is our goal was really to help reduce racial ethnic disparities in breastfeeding rates in the NICU. As we know, this is a big national problem that mm -hmm. um, non-Hispanic black mothers have much lower rates of um, breastfeeding than non-Hispanic white mothers, for example. So what we actually found is we tracked those outcomes. I, I brought up I brought up the, the education, early lactation and skin to skin. It turns out those improved in all of the racial ethnic groups. We were also very happy to see that, that we weren't seeing um, like differences in how well we were improving according to maternal race ethnicity. So we, all the groups had improved. But again, when we looked at what was happening later on in the hospitalization, again, that's where the drop-off was happening. And it turns out that that drop-off was happening disproportionately. So our Hispanic mothers mm -hmm. were dropping off the fastest, and then the Black mothers, and then the white mothers. Hmm. So, so what's this, going on we, there? Exactly. So this was very intriguing to us. And we were very worried about it. We were like, why, why is this happening? So we did a couple things. So the, one of the first things we did is we did qualitative interviews with mothers, um, particularly uh, we interviewed Hispanic and black mothers about their experiences. 
And, and we really found that, well, there was a, several things going on, but one of the largest areas that we noticed is that adverse social determinants of health or some of these unmet basic needs appear to be disproportionately or sort of very present among these families that were really impacting their ability to um, come to the NICU and breastfeed and pump milk. So what I'm talking about here are issues like transportation. They had considerable challenges with getting to the NICUs to visit their babies. Even though they really wanted to be there, it was just a huge deal. It was very expensive for them to travel. Child care issues, and number, you know, didn't have access to a car. The other big one, um, a lot of these families were sort of going back to work. And so just navigating all of that and trying to come to the NICU was very difficult. Food costs were a really big deal. Uh, like just paying for all the food in cafeterias, you know, those sorts of things. So food, transportation, parking, particularly were major barriers. There were some other really one, ones that we picked up too, especially our Spanish speakers talked a lot about how um, interpreter use was varied and how sometimes that was hard to get all information. So that was one big thing we do is just interview families to try to understand what else was going on. That like tipped us off that there must be different ways different NICUs are approaching some of these social determinants of health that were, that were impacting our families. So what we did is we actually did a survey to the different hospitals to try to understand how are they addressing these unmet basic needs or family engagement practices, people kind of use different terms, differently. Because we also found that the racial ethnic disparities were different by site. Some had very ah, small okay. disparities and some had really big disparities. Like it was, it was crazy. These are hospitals. This is Boston. The hospitals are like mm. across the street from one another and they had totally different rates. Interesting. <laughs> we were like, oh dear, there must also be things going on at the hospital level that are contributing uh -huh. to some of these disparities. So we, so we did these surveys and what we found is that hospitals totally varied in their parking costs, in the food that they provided. So for example, mm. some had like hot meals for breastfeeding mothers. Some had meals for anybody in the family. Some mm. didn't have any. They had different amounts of sort of, of um, peer lactation support. Nobody had anything in Spanish, like nothing. And then people varied in their interpreter services and the capacities of their interpreter services. So this was sort of, you know, a big learning perspective, I think, for our whole team to just think about that, especially for lactation, anyhow, that particularly later on in the hospital stay, likely some of these support for unmet basic needs or family engagement practices varied from hospital to hospital. So we thought a lot about this. And then what happened is about two, three years later, we planned for a new collaborative, like a whole new uh, statewide collaborative. And we decided to focus this collaborative on family engagement with a very strong attention paid to these unmet basic needs and social supports for families. So that was launched in 2020. And as you can imagine, we started to try to launch it in March of 2020. Yeah, something happened. <laughs> it didn't go as planned. So we ended up launching in the fall anyway, and virtually, and we have been doing the whole project virtually thus far. And we're now, we just had our first in-person meeting of all. And it was amazing uh, actually to be in person. It was very vibrant. People sort of came together, started sort of brainstorming their PDSA cycles. And anyway, so that was great. So in this new collaborative, again, like our reflection was we have to, in order to improve things like lactation, we need to sort of take a step back and think about the other ways that we can support families um, in being in their NICU uh, and providing breast milk 
um, and learning and just being with their babies. So again, with that, we're calling it the Family Engagement Collaborative. And I would say our four main areas of focus for this one is first communication with families. We have a very strong emphasis on ensuring that there's um, equitable communication. So mm -hmm. communication with our non-English speakers, similarly to our English speakers. The second main one is social supports. So here we're really focused on ensuring there's like a social work consult for every baby. The first social work consult is happening in the first week. We're focused on postpartum depression screening and social determinants of health, like, like assessing uh, social determinants of health in the context of our care. So that's sort of number two. And then number three is hands-on care. This is very similar to what we were doing in the breastfeeding. So we do a lot of breastfeeding, participation in infant care, and skin to skin. And then the fourth one is discharge readiness and planning. So we have a whole group of people that are really engaged in trying to make sure that both family members and providers are aware of all the processes needed to have a timely and efficient and effective and quality, high quality discharge planning. So that's the sort of the other one. So we're, you know, I would say our progress on this project because of COVID has not been as robust as we may have wanted because mm -hmm. teams just have limited bandwidth, as you know, um, yeah, nurse shortages in particular. Yeah. And it just makes quality ends up being honestly, sometimes one of the first things that sort of goes by the wayside when you're trying to just simply cover your unit. That being said, you know, we still have made progress. People have still done a lot of different things um, in these different domains to try to improve change. So you um, starting to see a narrowing of the gap uh, uh, with breast milk at, at discharge, breastfeeding at discharge? Not yet, but we're not hopeful. Yet. I would say okay. not yet, but we're hopeful. You know, there's a lot of different things people are working on. So mm -hmm. we're going to have to just keep at it, I think, and and track things longer over time to see if we'll see more improvements in that area. So, so. I'm curious, some of, some of these things that you mentioned seem like they might be hard to address as a PQC. I mean, you're, you're of course, we're, we're working with hospital administration. We're trying to make suggestions and, hey, you need to give free parking to these mothers. And, hey, can you give free meals to these people? But that's a, that's a lot of different factors involved in this? How have you addressed uh, some of these factors and gotten all the different players and and stakeholders involved and and, and sharing this information, this data with them so they can make better decisions to help help families? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, so, so you're totally right on. This is a huge issue. There's multifaceted. There's an array of different drivers going on. If anything, this family engagement work is almost too complicated. Um, and in fact, up front, we, we really thought about if we should just hone in on one of these four major domains. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I think people in our state really felt like they wanted the ability to work on, to have a choice about which one of these areas to focus on. So we're going with that. And it's been amazing to see how many different things people have come up with in all of them. But the sort of second part of your question is, you know, how do you arm people with uh, information to help change hospital policies and perhaps people that are beyond just the NICU level. I would say that we try to support one or two individual teams that are really tried to, to do this um, and provide them tips and data, if you will, mm -hmm. to show them. And that has generally been the most successful. So, for example, if we in the NICU, I actually worked in for many years at Boston Medical Center, we never had breastfeeding trays for mothers for years. Mm. We've done this for many years. But what was crazy to us is that in the second, we sometimes transferred our babies to the pediatric floor. That was like mm -hmm. kind of our step down unit. Our feeder growers would sometimes go there if we didn't have space. 
Once they got there, all of those mothers that were breastfeeding would get free meal, would get meals. It was like part of their workflow, but not part of the NICU. We kept trying to say like, this is totally inequitable. <laughs> like how can they be in one place and get one thing and then the other, the same doctor, same providers and get something else. I think we just kept yeah. chipping away. To be honest, I think we just kept chipping away and chipping away and, and just openly saying this, that finally led them to change and then now they could order a tray. And they also provided us like vouchers, food vouchers for the cafeteria, which families liked even more because anyone in the family could use it. We also never felt like it should only be the breastfeeding mothers, but like any mother or family should be able to go get a meal when they're there. So I would say that's sort of a personal experience of what we did. Other hospitals, I think when they've gone to their administration, it helps to use the backing of what our you know PQC can provide where they can mm -hmm. say, oh, did you know that two thirds of the hospitals provide this and we do not? <laughs> <laughs> like very compelling you know it's like very compelling argument when you talk about that it, so you leverage is a good it. thing <laughs> the brigham and women's hospital does this you know or whatever it is <laughs> um so sometimes you can i think people have had some success with that too not always i mean a lot of times the hospital administrators say no but that can help bringing like mothers with you to the table sometimes yeah. is very compelling too that's yeah. another thing that i've seen work is if you go and you have your meeting and you bring a mother who can share her story, that's helpful. Especially if you can get said mother to say, you know, my friend was at this place and we did this and now I'm here and I'm learning this. <laughs> I don't know, sometimes it depends on the, the situation, but so I find family testimonials are often very compelling. And if anything, they're like more compelling than local team members saying something. Those are some of my suggestions and thoughts of what I've seen work for people. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of a PQC and, and certainly a project when you're getting the family engaged is, is those patient parent voices are incredibly powerful because they're having that lived experience either at that time that they're going to that administrator, or that legislature, the legislator or whoever that may be and sharing their story and, and advocating for change. This is an exciting project. I like this. Um, so I got a couple questions for you. One, what's been your favorite part of this project so far? Because it seems like there's a huge opportunity to make a difference. And it seems like it, it, it's a lot of fun, if I can use that for a quality improvement project, which which I think QI projects are fun. But two, what's the, on the flip side of that, what's the most frustrating mm. thing that uh, this project is has, has, has brought to you so far that you've still been trying to work through and, and the challenges that you face with this? Yeah, so I would say for me, the most exciting, compelling part have been the voices and testimonials of families. So we have made a huge effort in all of our webinars and conferences to make sure that we have time and space for families to provide their own testimonies. And we have tried to really bring forward family members with a diverse background of uh, experiences. So mm -hmm. just to give you a couple examples, which to me were really kind of eye-opening for even for someone who's been around this long to make kind of a frame shift for the way I think. Um, one of them was the dad perspective. So we had a guy that runs like a support group for men, for dads of NICU babies. And so much of what he said 
was about how our conversations are always directed towards mothers in the prenatal and often postnatal. And so many of our assumptions are always about the mom's going to be completely involved and just what that's like, you know, and just like how we need to be very inclusive of fathers. The mm -hmm. other thing was just like the mental health issues that the fathers have. While fathers may often are less likely to bring them up, they are happening for sure. And they may not know totally how to express them. Um, that was super compelling. Also, often that sometimes the dads are working more than the moms on some of the information and just like how they feel left out, like they feel more left out because they're not getting the same information. So that was like very compelling for me to just think about the way I talk to dads. <laughs> I would say another family type that we really try to bring forward were non-English speaking families. And what we would do is we would interview them with a native speaker, record it, and then we would have captioning that we would bring to our meetings. That was super compelling as well, um, that people got to see and hear from the experiences of non-English speakers. And we would try to probe and get them to speak a little bit about what it was like in particular to have a baby in like a predominantly English speaking setting. So that I think really helped people also think more about what's going on. You know, we showed the data about how most of the time non-English speaking families are spoken to in English. Like this is what the data mm. shows. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was that that one was very compelling. And I think the third was we had some families with disabilities come and talk to us about what it was like. I mean, talk about a group that's completely marginalized and mm. our just beliefs is that they're, I think our baseline beliefs is that they are going to have a problem taking care of their child. Like that's our belief. Like we, like it's sort of this bias. So just to hear from them about how they kind of overcome this and are able to get through it in the NICU. So to me, that was probably the highlight or has been the highlight is to just bring voices of family members forward and highlight them in a way that we just often historically haven't had the time and space to do. Mm -hmm. I think that was great. The frustrations for me are probably COVID related <laughs> more than anything <laughs> else. Like just the bandwidth issues that our teams have faced. Like our data collection has not been as robust as some of our other PQCs. That is a problem in all PQCs, like just thinking really right. strategically about getting people to submit data. Cause of course you don't know a change. You know, you have to measure something if you want to know if you're actually making change. <laughs> so people are bought in in Massachusetts to this concept, but it's been really, I think, this bandwidth issue about how much people have been able to contribute on that front. And then I think just kind of, you know, it's just tough to sometimes do everything through webinars and Zooms. So that's been fun to finally get together again after that. Yeah. I think, yeah, those have been my my biggest frustrations. So well, let's talk about the, the COVID era for just a little bit, because as, as uh, directors that have sort of lived through that and tried to work through that space, I always look for lessons that, <laughs> that we have learned that can help us do a better job and and shifting to some of these virtual spaces. When, when you think back about that 2020, 2021 period, what uh, what lessons are you going to take forward as you continue directing uh, the Massachusetts PQC? Is there anything positive that we've learned that we can use to help do quality improvement work in the future? Well, one thing, because we're forced to do everything on Zoom or whatever, WebEx or some kind of uh, platform like that, is, you know, a struggle has always been to get families involved in our work. 
But when you switch to virtual, mm -hmm. that does make things easier. Like they, they can't obviously yeah. come to an in-person meeting because of everyone's workday. So that actually, I think, has its benefits that because everyone was switched to virtual, um, yeah. that I think helped probably getting more diverse family members to the table. That might be mm -hmm. something I think was a positive on that front. I think just getting really creative about how you provide content for people. I would say those are, I mean, we actually accomplished a ton in an all virtual. Yeah. It is, it is, even though that was such a challenging period, it is fun to sort of look back and go, yeah, well, you know, we actually got a few projects done and got this accomplished <laughs> and start, started some new things through this virtual world. So I think through any difficult period, you can always uh, find something positive in it. So what are some of the projects that, uh, that, you're, that you've been most proud of uh, that Massachusetts PQC has been involved in? I am only one of several people that have led uh, Massachusetts PQC projects for sure. The one that I personally have been involved with in leading that I'm most proud of is our breastfeeding for the very low birth weight infants project. For me, what was so important was just the, the unanimous engagement of all the level three hospitals and the teams at each site. Um, people just were so engaged and involved and really wanting to try to improve. And we did improve on our, our main process measures that we wanted to see. I think the other thing, again, for me, that was I was so proud of is that it was the first time, at least in our PQC, that we openly displayed all of our data according to race, ethnicity. Um, and this was back 2015 to 2017, which I think, you know, the understanding that there could be racial disparities in the way we do quality improvement has really become more and more acknowledged and recognized. But at the time, at least for us in Massachusetts, it was one of the first times we'd ever really openly presented this. And we did it open by hospital name. So everyone got to see how everyone was present was was doing. And this led us to some really like positive conversations. Like really, I didn't know that. Like I didn't know that the Hispanic mothers were doing so much horror compared to our white mothers in our NICU. Like oh my, like, why could this be? So it just, I was very proud that this acknowledgement occurred and that people learned a lot from it and were really willing to engage to try to understand um, solutions and think forward to what they could do locally and on the national level to understand the problem. So for me, that was my moment I was most proud of. Well, what's coming for the future? Tell me some projects that you've got in development that you're working mm -hmm. on. Just give us some some ideas uh, about about things. As I mentioned before, one of the main, one of the areas of interest in our family engagement project was addressing unmet basic needs or social determinants of health within the context of the NICU. So we actually had one of our teams that was very successful in this and really did a very robust integration of standardized social determinants of health screening and referral using a tool. And this practice, by the way, is also recommended by the AAP. It's recommended by various national organizations but it just hasn't yet come to scale in the NICU setting. It's much more common in the outpatient pediatric setting, outpatient um, adult setting, but in the inpatient environment, this hasn't really come to scale. But yet our families in the NICU are disproportionately low income and they're disproportionately being impacted by these financial needs because of the NICU stay itself. So that they're really at high risk mm -hmm. for having so many of these unmet basic needs impact them. So what happened with the success of this project is that we did apply and successfully got uh, one of the recent CDC perinatal quality collaborative grants that go for five years. 
And in the grant, we pitched that we were going to do both an OB project related to health equity bundles, as well as this neonatal NICU project that was focused on social determinants of health screening and referral into the NICU setting. So we got the grant and we've just started year one. And year one is going to start with five NICUs that are predominantly, that serve probably our greatest number of Medicaid insured families or sort of lower income families. And our plan is to integrate it into these five NICUs first and then expand over the course of the following years across the state. So that's sort of what's coming. Think about this social determinants health screening and referral project in the NICU as like a segue, if you will, from the family engagement project. It's smaller in nature. It's more concrete. So we hope that it'll lead to an uptick of this. So that's what's been on our horizon so far. And our five teams that are, they're very excited and dedicated and, and willing to be part of like a pilot and learn from one another. <laughs> Dr. Parker, thank you so very much for joining us today. And our listeners, thanks so much for turning into another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. Thank you, guys. It was great to speak with all of you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.